This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Tonight's learning is dedicated to Ilan Ishmael Pinchas ben Shaya, as well as Rafu Shleim Achaimishu ben Hendel, the Sarah Yisrael, as well as our Achaim ben Yisrael that are uh, in Europe, that are in a difficult situation. Hashem should watch over them and protect them. Uh, tonight we're going to do something a little different, but something we've never done before, which makes it exciting for me for sure, is we're going to go through the Megillah, <clears throat> at least a little bit of the Megillah, as much of the Megillah we can get to, and try to analyze it and look at it perhaps with mature eyes. You know, very often we have the Megillah that we've all read since we were small children. We all know the story, we've all read it, we've all heard it, we've all taught it to our children and grandchildren and maybe grand-grandchildren. But as we'll go through the Pesukim, and we'll notice there's some things that we partially didn't uh, maybe catch the first time or we didn't think about the first time, or we didn't uh, stop to focus on the first time that we studied it. So we're going to try to go through, I, I can't say we're going to get through the entire Megillah, maybe if there's even time, we'll try to come back and talk a little bit on the Parsha, hopefully there's time for that as well, but we'll try to get through at least some of the Megillah with a deeper understanding of the text of the Psukim and the storyline that took place. In the past, we have discussed, which I urge everyone if they want to listen online, we have discussed Parsha Zohar in depth, and I don't just mean from a halachic standpoint, uh, that we've discussed also, but from a hashkafic standpoint, to understand, to try to get to the, to what exactly was Amalek's issue with us, why didn't he like us, what was his hatred towards us, all the background and the hashkafic background behind Amalek, that we did a few years ago, and um, I urge everyone to take a listen, that is interesting. If you want to hear even more, we talked about in previous years, just today I got two Shilohs about the same question, about are women obligated in Parsha Zacher, so take a listen to that Shiloh as well. Uh, it's a, it, the answer is perhaps surprising for many of you, because it's, uh, it's not what people think the answer is. But in any case, tonight we're going to be focusing on the Megillah and the Purim story. So when I, uh, this year I was teaching my Talmidim in Yeshiva <clears throat> about the Purim story, and I mentioned to them that I think the one thing about the Perm story that many people get wrong, especially young children, maybe even adults, is that most people think the Perm story ends after uh, Haman gets killed. Or at least that's when most of us tune out of the Megillah story. And we kind of, uh, that's it, you know, the story's over, everyone claps, and everyone's already like, you know, almost gathering their stuff and ready, especially Lel, Tynus Esther, already thinking about what they're eating after the fast. But that's not exactly the end of the Perm story. The story does not end with the fact that Haman gets uh, gets hung. That's not the end of the Purim story. And definitely the Purim story doesn't end even earlier with the fact that the Jewish people are not killed. That's only half of the salvation of the Jewish people. And perhaps what's even most unique about the entire Purim story, and this hopefully we'll touch upon if there's time, is that the one person who doesn't really seem to get that salvation that you would anticipate is Esther. Because after all the small clears, Esther's still stuck married to Achashverosh. You know, uh, if Lahavdil Disney would have wrote a, a perm story, the story would have ended with, you know, Achashverosh lets, Vash, lets Esther go, Esther marries, but goes back to Mordechai, and Dayovish builds a base of Migdash, and everyone lives, lives happily ever after. It's not the way the story ends. She doesn't leave Achashverosh, she's still stuck with Achashverosh, and she's still presumably in a very difficult situation, which itself needs discussion to why exactly the Megillah ends that way. But in any case, let's get to the beginning of the Megillah, and we'll try to we'll try to work our way through the story and appreciate and understand all that that is here. So, with the opening pasuk, obviously, in each one of these pesukim, there's uh, many many parakim. We could probably spend you know years, and many schools actually learn the Megillah be'in. 
And on the girls' schools, they learn the Megillah's B.E. and they spend, you know, six months learning Megillah's Esther, which I don't think is a bad idea. I think the boys' school should do it also. But we don't have the time for that. This evening, we'll try to touch upon some of the major events in the, in the Megillah. So we'll start from the opening Pasuk. So everyone knows the opening Pasuk because that part of the Megillah everyone's awake for. It's like in the middle where everyone starts to, you know, uh, fizzle out a little bit. But the opening Pasuk of the Megillah of Ahashverish, we all know the famous Gemara. The Gemara tells us he always connotates Lush and Tsar. Something as bad is going to happen. Now the truth is, at this moment, nothing yet bad happens, and nothing really bad happens for quite some time. So why exactly is the Lushen Tsar now? Because as we'll see, we'll develop that the storyline is over a, a large span of time. You know, everyone thinks the whole Purim story was like, you know, four days. It was years, years in the making. So at this beginning, Pasuk, right now there is no Tsar. The Jewish people are living presumably very comfortably in Paras, Madai, in Persia, and all these other places. And there really is no Tsar. But we know there is a Tsar because we know about this fellow named Achashverish. Hu Achashverish, so I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when they read the Purim story is if you asked your average religious Jew, what's your feeling about Ahasuerus? Right? Everyone knows the Purim story. The villain is Haman. Mordechai is the star. Where is Ahasuerus? So most of us get the feeling that Ahasuerus is like neutral. He's not really bad. He's not really good. He's like fickle. You know, you can convince him this way. You can convince him that way. So first, Haman pushes him this way. And then, then Esther pushes him this way. Chazal tell us not so. Chazal tell us that Hurisha So that's, I think, the olive base when you start the Purim story. You have to start with that notion. Assume Achashverosh is wicked. Achashverosh is evil. Achashverosh is terrible. Now, when you read the story, you don't get that feeling. You don't get that feeling that he's the villain like Haman. But Chazal tells us he is. The Gemara tells us in Megillah, Achashverosh was a bad guy. Make no mistakes. Achashverosh was not what we think of him as a nice old man, you know, just trying to do his thing. You know, whichever way the wind blows, that's the way he goes, like a good politician. No. Achashverosh was no tzaddik. And the Mepharshim even have a kasha. At the end of the Purim story, if you think about it, at the end of the Purim story, who gets killed? Haman gets killed. Why doesn't Achashverosh get killed? Achashverosh took the clay on Mishkan and he was and he used them in a disrespectful way. So why isn't it that Achashverosh gets killed? Why only Haman gets killed? Achashverosh lives on. So it could be Pashib Shah Achashverosh lives on because through him, through Dayavesh, Klai Yisrael got to build the second base of Megdosh. Okay, maybe that was his Tafkar Achaim. But the Benishchai says an amazing idea. The Benishchai says that Achashverosh was no tzaddik. Achashverosh was a Russia. And he wanted to kill the Jewish people, make no mistakes. The difference between him and Haman, says the Ben Ishchai, is that Haman wanted to do it in a mavuza way. Haman wanted to kill the Jewish people in a terrible degradational way, to bring them down, to mavaza them. Like you have Lahavdil, there's a lot of similarities, Rabbi Isai, between the Purim story and, and, and the Holocaust. I know I do this with Parry, but I think with Haman there's even more. Right? There, there were different ways to kill the Jews in the Holocaust. Some of the Nazis did it in a terrible, disgusting way. They undressed them, they, they threw them into pits, and some people just shot them because they were following orders or whatever their cheshbainas were. You'll say to yourself, they're still horrible. Says the Ben Ishchai, not so. He says, if Achashverosh would have had his way and he would have killed all the Jews, he still wouldn't have been as bad as Oman because he wasn't doing it in an oifen of mevuzah. He wasn't embarrassing the Jewish people. Haman's plan to kill the Jewish people was to embarrass them, to mevaza them, to, to degrade them. And therefore, says the Ben Ishchai, unbelievable chizim. That's why Achashverosh, despite all his evilness, did not get killed at the end of the Purim story. So most people read the story. Achashverosh wasn't that bad. Says not so. Who Risha mitchilasi vaatzeif Achashverosh was no tzaddik. 
So what happens? We all know the famous Medrash. The Medrash tells us that we have the 127 Medinas. So we all know the famous story. Rabbi Akiva was saying Shir one day, and he noticed all the Talmidim were falling asleep. So I always get very comforted by this Gemara. I figured for Bakiva, who was a great Godel, a great Tana, they fell asleep in his shear. <laughs> it's no shock that people are going to fall asleep in my shear. So that always was a very comforting memory, Chazal, to me. But the Bakiva saw the Talmidim were misnamed, they were dozing off. So he told to try to tell them a joke. So he told them a joke. What was the joke? He said, why was it that Esther, why was it that uh, Esther merited to be the queen over 127 uh, Medinas? Because Sarah lived 127 years. So I also pointed out to my Talmidim, I said, that joke wouldn't fly today. You want to wake up and tell me, you don't tell him a joke like that. You got to tell him something that's going to exactly wake You tell him a joke about Torah, it puts them back to sleep. That's what puts them to sleep in the first place. But about Kivas Talmidim were obviously on a different Madrega. So when they heard a joke about something like that, that got them, uh, got them thinking. But what's the Shaykhis? What's the Pasha connection between the 127 Medinas and the 127? So the Chedushim, the Gay Rebbe says that there was a subtle Musa Shmuz over here from Rabbi Kiva to his students. He was saying that if every, if, if Sarah's life each year corresponded to another Medina, so it says the Chedushim, that means that each year was another Medina. So each, every six months was like another uh, city, right? If, if a Medina is a country, so we know in a country there's states, there's city, there's neighborhoods. So if each year got you a country, so you have to assume every six months got you like, you know, uh, uh, states and cities and every year of her life and every day of her life she got like, you know, a couple neighborhoods. So says the Chedushim, and you guys don't realize you're wasting your life, you're falling asleep. Look what Sarah was able to do with every moment of her life. It got her another, that Esther got another part. So if, if five minutes gets, you know, like uh, five blocks and uh, learning and being awake for two months gets you, you know, uh, two, you know, two neighboring towns. So he was trying to show them the importance of time. You're sitting here sleeping. Look, Esther, every, uh, Sarah, every moment of her life, she was able to accomplish amazing, amazing things. So what happens? So we all know the story. But Yamahim in those days, Kishavas Amelcha Chashverish Akisa Malchusoi Asher B'Shushan Abira. Achashverish is the king. So there's a whole discussion in the Gemara. Obviously, if you learned the Gemara Megillah Dafiyemi not so long ago, a lot of this you're familiar with. The Gemara tells us that there's a question if Achashverish actually came from royalty or he married into royalty. Vashti was for sure from royalty, and there's a shayla in the Gemara if Achashverish came from royalty or he only married into royalty. But Achashverish decided he wants to make a party. But look at the Pasuk, The party was in the third year of his reign. If you want to know what year did the Gzeira come down to kill the Jewish people, it was in the twelfth year of his reign. It means there was an in-between time of nine years of nothing. Quiet, nothing. No excitement, no nothing. Which the Mephoshim point out, very often in life, as we all know that this, this story is where the Tsarist of Klaisrael came in, but there was a long bl- a, a, a break of nine years. So we don't always know the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world and we could do something wrong and we won't get, you know, punished, chas v'shalom, for years later. There was a, a large break in the story of when the Suda, the party happened to when the Gzeri came down. So he decides to make a party. Achashverosh was a very fickle person. Achashverosh wanted to show off. Again, one of the one of the, <coughs> the downfalls and pitfalls of Haman as well, was this idea of being very, very self-absorbed, very, very focused on himself, very focused on his ego, on his covet, and on his perception. So Achashverosh decided he wants to show off to everyone how rich he is. He wanted to show off the wealth. 180 days, that is six months worth of partying. That is one serious party for six months worth of partying. 
And, you know, even in college, I don't think they can party for that long without having enough. But the truth is, we'll see, at least in the second party that Achashverosh makes, Achashverosh was very makbid in the second party not to get drunk. In the first party, it was more of a let, you know, let, let, let loose party. In the second party, which the Megillah gives us very little information about, all the information that we have is only about the first party. The first party was where he showed off everything. That's where he showed off how wealthy he was and how amazing he was. And it says over here, he wants to show off all his things. And the Megillah gives us all details. And then it says the next party, right? That was the first party. First party, we know very little details. Then we have another party. Ooh, he made another party. That was for the people in Shushan. That was a small party, seven days. The first one was 180 days, and we know very little about that party. Then comes the second party. The second party was seven days. And then the Megillah gives us details. All these fancy, fancy things he had. He had the fancy carpentry and the fancy linen, the fancy couches, gold and silver beds, all this fancy, fancy stuff, which we don't find in the first, in the first party. Then the Megillah describes the details of what he served. The hashkos He served golden vessels. We know the Megillah tells Megamar Megillah tells us that you can never reuse a cup. Everyone, every time you want a new drink, you got a new cup. Okay, today we do that with plastic, but when you do that with real, so every time you got a new drink, you got a new cup. There was an endless amounts of alcohol. So there's a whole discussion over here amongst the Achreinim that there's something missing from this party. Right, the party we'll see has booze. It has fancy things. Where's the music? Where's the music? So uh, some Mepharshim point out that it doesn't even tell us what the food was. You think he'd go on, a guy, today a guy makes a party, he brags about the steaks that he has, and he brags about the, this that he has, the sushi station, the carving station, the meat station. None of that's discussed. So Mepharshim point out that what, what, what Achashverosh was trying to show off was not how much money he spent, but was those unique items that he had. Anyone can get a carving station. And anyone can get a sushi station. No big deal. He was trying to show off the uniqueness was all this very, very fancy, fancy, high-end things that typical people don't have. And that's why there's no mention of music because uh, what's a big deal? Get a band. No chiddish that he'd have music at the party. But um, the mashkiach in Shayoshev, Rabbi Sandler, Alicia Sandler wrote a book all about music. And in his book, he points out that maybe not. He suggests that maybe Badafka there wasn't music at the party because we know music has an ability to bring a, pl- a person closer to Yiddishkeit. The power of a niggin, everyone knows that today it's very popular in the world. Everything today is a kumzitz with a niggin because it has an ability to bring a yid closer. So Achashverosh was afraid that if you'd have music at the party, perhaps it would cause the yidin to not be so let loose at the party and perhaps it would cause them to regret being at the party and perhaps cause them to leave the party. That's why it was a musicless party. Probably the only party in history without music might have been this party in Shushan. But the Pasuk tells us, There was no limit to the booze. The booze was flowing. Now it's interesting, Rashi tells us interestingly, that this party was like the, was a Jewish party. What's a Jewish party? So Rashi quotes from the Medrash, like in the, the Mizbeach. And in Mizbeach there's more food than drink. So here also there was more food than drink. Now why would Achashverosh make such a from a party? With more food than drink like the Mizbech. I think Achashverosh cared about the Mizbech. So the Tertemimah says, the Tertemimah says, this party that he made in Shushan, the entire tachlis of the party was to commemorate the fact that the Jewish people are not getting back into the base of Migdash. 
And this really changes our outlook on the, on the party. This whole party was a simchas hayoyim of that he made the cheshbin, that the Jewish people are not going into the base of Mikdash and they're not going to be redeemed and God forgot about them. Now can you imagine the Jews going to such a party with the entire part, purpose of the party was to commemorate the fact that you're not coming back to redemption and Hashem forgot about you. Oh, sign me up! And kachavi, a lot of Jews went to the party. It just it's so it's so hard to imagine Jews would go to such a party, and that's pshat in the loshen vayihi in the beginning. That was the tsar. The tsar wasn't the gzair. The gzair didn't come from another nine years. The fact that Jews went to a party that was celebrating the idea that Hakadosh Baruch Hu is done with us, and we're never going back into the base of Mikdash, and we're going to be in Gulls forever. How can a Jew go to such a party? And that's why even in the beginning of the Purim story, before we even are nigzar olav loharugoi, right away we already find the loshen vayihi. That was the biggest tsar. The fact that the Jewish people can go to such a party and partake and be mishtatev in a party which was only done for the sake of commemorating and being uh, celebrating the Jewish uh, downfall, that was the problem of the Jewish people. But the Mepharshim point out that Achashverosh Bedavka did not want to get drunk at this party. Achashverosh had an agenda and he Bedavka did not want to have any drunkenness, which is why he served more food than alcohol. Everyone knows if you have more food than alcohol, you won't get drunk. Says the Torah to me, no, he was trying to copy the Mizbech. Because he just finished telling everyone that the Jews are never going back into the base of Migdash. So he wanted his party to be like a base of Migdash. And just like in the base of Migdash, we have more food, meaning there's more eaten than drunk. The carbonates have more food than they have alcohol. That's why he wanted to mimic such a type of idea. The Chudusherim says that the reason why the Jewish, the reason why we have a mitzvah to drink on Purim is because since on, on this Suda, Achashverish had more food than alcohol. So we do v'nahapachu. So on Purim we have more drinking than we have food. Okay? That's a bit of a, a stretch. But nonetheless, there was an, according to the many Mepharshim, at the Shushan party, there was an emphasis on Achashverosh's part of not to get drunk. Achashverosh was really trying to stay sober. He did not want to get drunk. Because he figured, that's why Balshetzer got killed. Right? We know Balshetzer took out the kalim of the base of Mikdash and he also used him. He got killed. Achashverosh figured, you know what? You know what the difference is? Because he was vilt. He was disrespectful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be keep my mind. I'm not gonna be drunk. I'm not gonna be, you know, shikker. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be buzzed a little bit, but I'm gonna be totally focused, and I'm not gonna get in trouble for using the kalim of the base hamigdash. So it says in the pasuk, "Vashtiya kadas einenis." No one was forced. It was what we call today chilled. Whatever you want, no pressure. Whatever you want, you know. Today they probably serve drugs, but okay, back then there wasn't. You know, um, I had a Talmud once who asked me, are you yoytza ad yada by getting high on marijuana? So, so someone showed me a few weeks ago, there's a safer, entire safer written, all hilchas marijuana. Some guy wrote an entire safer, and I'm a whole safer, with marimekoymus about the pros and cons of marijuana, legal marijuana, uh, medical marijuana, a whole safer all about marijuana. So someone wanted to tie it to me a big yisait about marijuana. I, I, I never smoked marijuana. I can't tell you, I know either way. But someone wanted to tie in a big lumdus. He said that when a person gets drunk from alcohol, when a person gets high, so he wants to connect to other people. When a person gets high in marijuana, he wants to detach from other people. He likes to be alone. I, I don't know, basically. But uh, that, that's the difference. When a person gets high in alcohol, he wants to, he wants to become part of the group, which is all what Purim is all about, getting uh, shalom vereos, getting connecting to each other. When a person gets high from marijuana, he wants to be by himself. Purim is not about being by yourself. Purim is about being together with other people. So that's why this fellow wanted to tell you, you can't be Yitzhah with marijuana. Okay, that's uh, maybe an interesting shayla. These are one of the shots you sent to Rabasha Weiss about, you know, whether you Yitzhah marijuana. Okay, in any case, so, um, so, um, no pressure, whatever you wanted. So the Mephoshim point out something so interesting. This party was supposed to be a chilled party. 
right? Chilled, whatever you want. We're not forcing you. Because again, Achashverosh wanted to make sure that if the Jewish people sin, it's got to come from them, not from me. So he couldn't pressure them into it. He couldn't stop them with Dvar Masurim because then they wouldn't be held accountable. So Achashverosh knew that the way to bring down the Jewish people is to cause them to sin, but he also knew that the sinning of the Jewish people has to come from them, not from him. So he was like very chilled, yo, you want sherry cask, no sherry cask, whatever you want, we're not pressuring you, whatever you want to drink. However, there was only one person he pressured at this party, and that was Vashti, which is pretty, uh, pretty ironic. It was supposed to be such a chilled out party, yet when it came to Vashti, all of a sudden Achashverosh is such a, such a stickler. All of a sudden, he, the whole, the whole uh, vibe in the party kind of got lost. When all of a sudden he cracks down on Vashti, which is which is an which is an ironic thing on its own. So what happens? So the pasuk tells us that he wanted that he wanted to make sure that um, that it was a chilled out situation. Everyone should have what they want. It should be very very calm, very enjoyable type of situation. Now we all know that the Medrash tells us that Mordechai attended this party. Mordechai and Haman both attended this party. Now you have to know, Chazal tells Mordechai and, Mordechai and Haman have a long history with each other. They go back to the days of the battle. Mordechai and Haman were both generals. There was a revolt in the times before the Purim story. And Mordechai and Haman were both generals. And Haman wasn't very good with his, uh, with his group. He didn't know how to re- lead the people. So Mordechai, he comes to Mordechai and he says, you got to save me, I'm gonna, my people are going to starve. So Mordechai says, no, I'm not interested in saving you. They already, already had some bad blood. So Haman said, please, I have no choice. So that's when Haman sold himself as an Evet. Haman sold himself as a slave to Mordechai in return for Mordechai <coughs> giving him the food and the other things he needed for his platoon to survive the war. That's why the Bepharshim say, that's why Mordechai refused to bow down to Haman. Because if he bowed down to Haman, that would signify him freeing his slave. A master never bows down to his slave. So if Haman, if Mordechai would bow down to Haman, that would be like he was Meshachrim, and he had no intention of Meshachrim. He wanted to keep him as an Evet. So they have a funny relationship. So the Medrash says that both Mordechai and Haman were at this party. So why was Mordechai at this party? So Abraham Kanevsky famously says that Mordechai was at this party to be the Mashkiach. He turned on the ovens. He made sure there was no Yai Nesach. So Mordechai was there to protect the Jewish people. That's the classical shot that they give. Why Mordechai was at the party to make sure everyone behaved. And everything was, you know, that's the famous joke. The party was Kedasu Kedin. It had Chesidin Shashchita. It had everything proper. So what was so bad? We'll have to get to him. came what they did so bad. The Pashtas is that the food was kosher. Right? They flew in kosher food for the Jewish people. They were very understanding, very accommodating. They might have even been a mechitza. I don't know. So we'll have to see. So Ibn came. what was so bad about this party. So what happens? The Megillah tells us, Vashti didn't want to be left out. So she also made a party. Right? Everyone should be equal. So she also made a party. She made a party. So Vashti has her own party going. Now Vashti also needs a little bit to talk about. The Gemara tells us that Vashti was a Rosh Marusha. Vashti, Vashti was a horrible person. Vashti used to make the girls work for her naked. They weren't allowed to wear clothing when they worked for her. Why? Because Vashti was afraid that the, the girls would steal. Vashti was afraid they'd pocket stuff and bring it home. So she had to make sure that they don't steal anything. They made her. They made the girls work uh, without clothing. You can't, uh, you can't steal anything if you have no pockets to put into. So the Gemara says that even on Shabbos, Vashti made the women work uh, without clothing. I, the Gemara says that uh, the women weren't going to carry on Shabbos because there was a shadow of Hoytzah. Kavaldik, back to Hitzah. So they say, no, Vashti was such a Rosh Merusha, she thought that the Jewish people had such a taiva to steal, they'd even steal if it meant being Mechal Shabbos. 
That's why some of our say that's why Yivashi's whole downfall happened on Shabbos. Because she doubted the Jewish people about the Shemir Shabbos. So her downfall came about on Shabbos. What happened on Shabbos? So the Pasuk says it was on the seventh day. So here you got to be careful. We keep on saying that, va- that the Achashverosh didn't want to get drunk. So what does it mean? So I think this is a strong raya. To Toiv Lev HaMelech doesn't mean that Achashverosh was drunk. Right? We all know the Gemara talks about different levels of drunkenness. So the most extreme level of drunkenness is what we call Shikrusa Shaloit. You're so smashed, you're like Shikrusa Shaloit. So the Pashtis is Lahalacha, we're not going to get into all the details over here, we've talked about it in previous Shurim, is that that's not what a person is supposed to get to on Purim. When a person hits Shikrusa Shaloit, he's already way beyond the Kima Mitzvah, because you can't do Mitzvahs when you Shikrusa Shaloit. Those are the guys that are rolling around in their own vomit on the streets, that's not Adoliyada. What's Adoliyada? So the phrase I like to use is a very nice buzzed feeling. What is a buzz feeling? Buzz feeling means you know what you're saying, you know exactly what you're saying, but you would never say if you didn't drink. That's what brings out the, the achtos of Klai So when it says in the Pasuk, Toiv Leva Melchwiyayin, the Pasha doesn't mean he was drunk, because we keep on saying that Achashvayah tried to not get drunk. So maybe he wasn't drunk, he was uh, buzzed, he was in a good mood. So if the whole drinking comes from Achashvayah, then we have to be like Achashvayah. So we're also supposed to only get buzzed and uh, not smash drunk or shikus or shalait. We're supposed to get that good, nice feeling. I think they call it inhibited. Right? And normally you think twice before you say it, but when you have a couple drinks, you don't think twice, right? Also now you love everyone and everyone's your best friend. So what happens? So Achashverosh, like any good king, has many assistants, many people, and he sends them. He sends them to bring Vashti to come see him. So we know the Gemara gives us the backstory over here. What was the backstory? So these guys, what are going to do when they're drunk, or not drunk, when they're high? They talk about who has the prettier wife. When you didn't uh, drink, they don't do that. They talk about, you know, uh, how much they love Hashem, or how much they miss Hashem, or how much they wish they learned more. And they talk about spiritual things. When going to get drunk, they talk about who has a prettier wife. Okay. So they all fighting who has a prettier wife. So Achashverosh uh, says, no, I have the prettiest wife, and I'll prove it to you. She'll come, and I'll show her off, and everyone can see how beautiful, how beautiful she is. So um, the Gemara tells, the Pasuk says, Mati malka Vashti love, Vashti didn't want to come. So the Gemara asks, Vashti was no Tsenua, Vashti was no nice Beis Yaakov girl, Vashti was more than happy to show off her, uh, her body to the people. So why did she not want to come? So we all know the famous Chazal, she grew some form of a growth, a Tzaras, a tail, different Pshatim, I'm not going to get into now, but she didn't look very appeasable to come to the king. But many before Shem learned, you know what got Vashti so upset? What got Vashti upset was that Achashverosh didn't come himself. You send me an email that you want me to come? Come yourself. I'm the Malka. I was born into the family. You married into the family. You got to come to me. You want to invite me to a party? Don't send me an email. Send me one of your goons to come invite me. You come yourself. Look at the Pasuk. It says in the Pasuk, they sent. That's what bothered Vashti very much. That, that she was invited like, like a visitor. You want me? You get up and you come say, to come. So what happens? So Vashti is very upset. So the king gets upset. So the kasha is pashup shot. I don't understand. If Vashti looks gross, she looks. She has a tail. She has a skin breakout. So Achashverosh doesn't want to show up like that. That would defeat his whole case. So why doesn't Vashti say back to him, "Listen, dear honey, I am having a bad day today. I'm not looking my best. You don't want me to show up." That would make Achashverosh so angry. That would make Achashverosh very happy. So the Gemara says because Vashti didn't say that. Vashti didn't just say back to him, by the way, I'm having a bad day. She said, you're a drunkard. You can't hold your alcohol. My father and my grandfather could drink double the amount that you could drink and they never got drunk. And look at you, you can't handle your alcohol. So Musa Haskell is, don't insult a man about his level of alcohol content. 
gets very touchy. So Achashverosh got very insulted that A, he wasn't from Malchus, and B, that he can't handle his alcohol, and that made Achashverosh very, very upset at the entire story. So what happens? So now he's got to deal with the, uh, the Vashti problem. What does he do? So he calls in the Chachomim, he calls the rabbis. He tells the rabbis, you got to help me deal with my wife. My wife is uh, disrespectful. So the Gemara tells us the rabbis are very smart. They say to themselves, this is a lose-lose situation. If we advise them to kill Vashti, he's going to wake up tomorrow morning and realize he just, we just had his wife killed and he's going to kill us. If we say, let it slide, she's having a rough day, so then you're going to say, well, you're married by Malchus. So the Chacham decided to do what every good you know, uh, rabbi likes to do, punt it on to someone else. We can't pass in. We don't have the same authoritative power like we used to. Sanhedrin is not in business now. You got to go send it off to someone else. Very smart idea. So we all know the end of the story. They uh, ultimately, Memuchan, which is Haman, tells everyone, he riles up Achashverosh. He tells Achashverosh, listen, Achashverosh, this is not just a rebellion against you. This is an entire movement of women thinking that they can mistreat their husbands. And that we can't have. We can't have a society where the women think that they are in control of the men. Okay? So therefore, we have to put, put this uh, to rest right now. Therefore, we have to make it clear that the women don't, don't run the house. The men run the house, and you got to make it a law. Put it on the books that the men run the shots, the men call the shots, the men run the show, and the women have to follow whatever the men says. And that's what happened. And that was the rule that was sent out to all the countries that since Vashti didn't come, that was considered a rebellion against her husband, and women have to follow whatever the men say. And it says in the positive, and all the women have to show respect to their husbands. No matter what, all the women have to be subservient to their husbands. Everyone liked this. Beautiful, beautiful idea. They sent letters throughout the entire country that all the men have to be in control. Not only all do the men have to be in control, but the women have to learn the husband's language. If you have a marriage where two people speak different languages, the women have to learn the men's language because the men are in control, the men are in power. So the Gemara tells us that when this letter was sent out, all the rest of the people were laughing. What a foolish country. You have to send out a rule like this. This is a poshet. That's the way it was always. You don't need a, a government law to tell you that the wife is supposed to listen to the husband. But that was the law. The takeaway story from Vashti was that now all the husbands have to, uh, the husbands have all the power and the women are subservient. Okay? So that's the end of Parakalif. So what happens next? So again, the Pashtis is, this at this point has nothing to do with the Jewish people. Very nice. So internal politics between the Vashti, you know, it would make the tabloid magazines, you know, politics in the palace, whatever, but it has no real shaykhs to Klai So what happens? We all know the second parak. Remorse, like everyone in the world, people have remorse of what they did. And he realizes, the Gemara tells us that he wakes up the next morning and he says, where's Vashti? He has no recollection that he had her killed. And obviously he feels remorse. He feels bad of what he did. But now, now look at the next pasuk. All of a sudden, these young guys, nare hamelech, young advisors. I thought we had all these old guys. He had all these famous advisors. He had he had bixav avgasa zaysa karkas shivas asarosim asarisim amisharsim, and all of a sudden we have these nare uh, hamelech. So I saw one pshat is that Achashverosh realized that old guys gave him bad advice. They gave him bad advice. Right, their advice was to kill Vashti. That was bad advice. So what do you do when you don't like the advice that you get? You uh, clean up the swamp. You get rid of everyone. So he emptied out the entire cabinet and he brought in all young people. You know, millennials. They think different. They understand things differently. He wanted a young, uh, young group of people around him instead of the old group. 
But the other pshat is even more more gishmak, maybe. The other pshat is what's with all these young guys? Because what's their what's their suggestion going to be Tachashvevish? You need a new wife. So they're going to suggest to bring in all the most beautiful women from all over the country. And they figure to themselves, whatever Achashverosh doesn't take, we'll take for ourselves. Young guys, they're looking for wives. The older men, they're already married. It's not a gay for them. But these young guys figured, we're going to have Achashverosh bringing all these you know, pretty women. He's only going to marry one. And the rest of the women will take. So this was like a little bit of a, a selfish move by these guys to pick themselves a, a wife. So what happens? They come up with this idea that we need to find a, a wife for the king. We need to find now. Here is interesting also. It says in the passage, who do they want? They want now Royce Besulois Toivais Maria. They want girls that are Besulois. They never lived with a man before that are very beautiful. And they sent out a whole delegation of people to go city to city to find out where you could find these beautiful girls. And they went searching door to door to take over, to take uh, beautiful girls for the king. So now it's interesting. Why is this interesting? Because who does he end up marrying? He marries Esther. Esther was probably not a Besula. Esther was married to Mordechai. So it's interesting. I never saw anyone speak this out, but it always bothered me that um, if, if Achashverosh was so makhbet to take Naros Besulois, and he takes Esther, Esther wasn't a Besula. So that could be part of the miracle also. That we thought that Achashverosh was only going to take a queen that had this requirement. And <laughs> Esther, unless you tell me Esther and Mordechai never lived together. Hard to imagine. I don't see why, why it would be that way. But Esther Pashtus wasn't a Besula. And it sounds like that the king wanted only a basula. So this is, again, another twist of Yad Hashem in the Megillah that Hashem created, Hashem made it that, no, he ended up with someone that al Derech he shouldn't have ended up with, which is all part of the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world. So what happens over here? They're looking for a queen. So now we're introduced for the first time, we're introduced to Mordechai. Who is Mordechai? So the Pasuk tells us he's Yehudi. He's a Yehudi. So there's a whole discussion in the Gemara, what's Mordechai's background? So we know for sure that Mordechai comes from Binyamin. So he might have also been from, his mother might have been from Shevet Yehuda, but for sure his father was from Shevet Binyamin. Why is it important for us to know his father was from Shevet Binyamin? Because we're going to read in the Haftarah in this week's Parsha, in Parsha Zacha, the Haftarah tells us a famous story, which we spoke about, I think, in other years, the story with uh, Shaul and Agag. Shaul uh, had a commandment in the Torah to destroy, he really had a Nevoah from Shmuel, to destroy Amal, to destroy Agag, who was Melech Amalek, to destroy everyone, Mamesha Holocaust, destroy everyone, men, women, children, animals, destroy everything. We know that Shaul did not do that. Shaul did not kill Agag, he let Agag live. And that night, the Medrash tells us, that night Agag uh, was able to get a woman pregnant, and from that, uh, from that woman produced a Haman. So there's a connection between Sheva bin Yaman, which Shaul was from Sheva bin Yaman, because Shaul didn't do his job, that led to Haman being around. And that's why <coughs> Mordechai had to be the one to save the Jewish people, because he came from bin Yaman. He had to uh, fix Haman because of his family's background that did not do it. The Gemara also tells us that um, there's another significance about both Esther and Mordechai coming from Sheva bin Yomin, because Sheva bin Yomin comes from Rocha. And Rocha had an unbelievable kayach hashtika. Rocha had the ability to be quiet. One of the hardest things for Esther to do, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I don't know if we'll have time for it, Esther was not allowed to tell her background. She wasn't allowed to reveal her background. That take a, a lot of uh, gevura. We like to talk about ourselves. And Esther had to not tell her background, so that kayach hashtika came from her alter grandmother, came from Rocha. So what happens to Mordechai? Asher haglom Yerushalayim. Now, just for those that are not familiar with the history over here, when does the Purim story take place? So the Purim story takes place between Bayis Rishon and Bayis Shani. So it's after the Chorban. There's no base on Mikdash. 
and the Jewish people are living, some are in Eretz Yisrael, but the predominantly, majority of the Jewish people, maybe all the Jewish people, are already living in Achashverosh's control. But when does Mordechai find his way there? So the Pasuk says, Yerushalayim. So the Gemara, the Gemara quotes over here that he went on his own. He wasn't forced into Golis, he went on his own. So the question is, why would he leave Eretz Yisrael to go to Paras Umadai? So one terrorist they give is because Sanhedrin wasn't active anymore. So once the Sanhedrin is closed, the Kaycha Torah is gone, he didn't feel any big urge to live in Eretz Yisrael anymore. But I saw a more creative terrorist. The reason why he left uh, Eretz Yisrael is because we know, the Gemara tells us, that Mordechai married Esther. So since Mordechai married Esther, and Esther lived over there in Shushan, so he had to leave Eretz Yisrael to marry his wife. So that's why Mordechai left Eretz Yisrael, <clears throat> so he can go marry his, uh, his wife. So he, he goes... And the Pasuk tells us, Esther. So the question is, what was her real name? Was her real name Esther? Was her real name Hadassah? What was her real name? Now it's interesting, some Mepharshim point out that her real name was Hadassah, not Esther. So why is he called Megillus Esther, not Megillus Hadassah? So the answer is because the name Esther is what we refer to as Anoichi Aster Aster Panai. The name Esther references the idea of the hiddenness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That the whole Purim story, we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name is not in the Megillah, because the whole Purim story is all background with the idea of a Haster Ponim. It looks like Hashem is not there, it looks like Hashem has forgotten us, it looks like Hashem has left us, but we know that He's ultimately there. So the Torah, the Megillah tells us, what's the background to Esther? So Esther has a very sad background. The Mary tells us that Esther lost her father when her mother was pregnant, and her mother died during childbirth. Okay, why do we need to know that? Why is that relevant? It's very sad. Why do we have to know that? So uh, there's two pshatim that are given. One pshat someone told me the other day, I think B'Shem Ebionis and Ibishitz, that uh, we know that if someone is an oinus, they can't fulfill a mitzvah, but they want to fulfill a mitzvah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives them credit as if they did the mitzvah Bishle Musay. If a person does a mitzvah, so he only gets credit for as well as he did the mitzvah. But if a person wanted to do a mitzvah, but he can't, he's an oinus, so Baruch Hu gives him credit, not that as if he did the mitzvah, as if he did the mitzvah to the highest level. So we know that um, Esther needed to be the one to save the Jewish people, and she's coming to save the Jewish people against Amalek. Amalek goes back to Esav. What was Esav's greatest saving grace? The mitzvah of Kibar of the Aim. So the person who's going to defeat um, Esav, Amalek, has to be someone who's amazing in Kibar of Aim. Who's going to be amazing in Kibbutz Aim? Someone that didn't have parents. The person has parents, so the chances are they're not going to do Kibbutz Aim in the best way. They'll try, but it's very difficult. But since Esther had no parents, she had no mother, she had no father, so she wanted to do Kibbutz Aim, but she couldn't. She was an Oynus. So when a person is in the status of an Oynus, they get credit as if they fulfilled it to the most highest level. Therefore, she was considered the best uh, performer of Kibbutz Aim, and therefore she was the right person to combat against Esa. The more posh the terrorists, I think, is, is that we mentioned before that Mordechai was adamant that Esther not reveal her background. Esther was not allowed to tell the king where she came from. Why not? So Rashi says, Mordechai was afraid that if he... Sh- Mordechai was convinced that Esther wasn't going to make it to be the queen. That Esther would eventually get rejected and she would uh, be, be given to go back home. So he said, if I'm going to tell her that she comes from royalty, Achashverosh is going to want her even more. But the Mephorshim point out a different shot. They say that Esther was the exact opposite of Ashti. Vashti kept on throwing it back in Achashverosh's face. Oh, my father, my grandfather, I come from royalty. Achashverosh wanted a girl who said, I'm a nobody. She never talked about her family. She never talked about her pedigree. She never talked about her yichas. Achashverosh loved that. Because she was the opposite of Vashti. 
Vashti kept on bragging about her background and basically putting down Ahasuerus because of it. And Vashti was the, and Esther was the opposite. That's why uh, Esther was so successful by not telling her, her background. Okay, so what ends up happening? So there's a Medrash, actually. The Medrash says that um, Esther went into hiding. That Esther went into hiding <clears throat> that she didn't want to be found. But uh, she hid for a while, actually. She hid, for, I think, about three years, four years she hid. And ultimately she was found and she was taken to uh, to the king. She was taken as all the other pretty girls to uh, to uh, to Ahasuerus. Uh, so, Mephoshim point out that we learned in the last parak that all the husbands are in control of their wives. So we most of us said that has nothing to do with the Purim story. So they say, no, it has to do with the Purim story. Why? Because what's going to happen when they come knocking on Mordechai's door, they say, uh, where's your wife? So what do most husbands say? I don't know where she is. I don't know. She went on her own vacation. She's doing her own thing. But now that the, the Megillah said that there was a rule sent out that the husbands are in control, how do you know where your wife is? You're the boss. You're the man of the house. You got to know where your wife is. So now there's no longer any excuse of saying, I don't know where she is. I don't know. She took a vacation. She's uh, somewhere. I don't know. That was no longer an option. So therefore Mordechai couldn't play that card and that's why Esther was taken. So now Esther is taken. And the Megillah tells us <clears throat> That she has seven She has seven different girls working for her. So every day she had a different girl work for her. So the Gemara says, why did she have that? Because she wanted to know which day was Shabbos. So each girl was a different day of the week and she would know which day is Shabbos. So we all heard this Gemara when we were seven years old. And I don't know why none of us were ever bothered by like, there must have been a calendar in, in, in the palace. Come on. Esther didn't know what day was Shabbos. She wasn't in a midbar. It wasn't like she was misupping about the international dateline, which day is Shabbos. She knows which day was Shabbos. What do you mean? She, 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 there was no Shiloh of the calendar. Very, very hard shot. So I saw a different shot, which makes a little bit more sense to us, at least. No, Esther wanted to make sure. She wanted to keep Shabbos. But again, she wanted to make sure that no one knew she was Jewish. So if on Saturday she sits back and does nothing, someone's going to notice something is off. So she had a rotation. Every day to be a different girl. No one would ever watch her being... No one would ever know which day she's relaxing. Meaning, if you watched her for an entire week, you'd say, wow. She works six days on the seventh day she does nothing. But if there's a rotation, you don't know which day is her day off. So good, she's not working today, but maybe tomorrow she'll work and the other day she worked. But if it would be the same girl working all seven days, she would notice, hey, six days you're working, the seventh day you're not working, something is strange. So that's why she had different girls working for her in the palace. So what happened, says the Megillah, Esther did not reveal her background. Why? Because Mordechai told her, not to. Mordechai was adamant about this. And we'll see later on, it says in the passage, that's Mama Mordechai also. Right? She followed it as a psak from a rav. Not just her husband. Das Torah told her not to say. A rav told her not to say. A navi told her. Ashik Nesagdeila told her not to say. And therefore she did not reveal her background. So what happens? So if you look in the pasuk, it says finally she gets her turn to come. Finally she's chosen after six months of preparation. Right? You think your wives take a long time to get ready to go out. Took six months. Six months she had to get ready with makeups and creams and ointments. And now she was ready to go to the Beis HaMelech. And we all know, it says in the Pasuk, <clears throat> Esther found, found favor in the eyes of all the people who saw her. And therefore, ultimately, Esther was taken. Jewish trivia. What month was Esther taken into the palace? So the Megillah tells us she was taken in, in the month of Teves. In what year? Here we got to just keep track a little bit, right? The seventh year. 
Now, I don't get it. The third year was when he made the party. The third year is when Vashti got killed. The third year was when he started looking for a wife. So why was she not taken until the seventh year? So Pashapshat, you learn that he went through all the other girls and it took him four years until he picked the right girl. But the Medrash says, no, that she went into hiding. I mentioned this before. She went into hiding for three years. For three years, she evaded Achashverosh. And finally, she got caught. She was brought to the palace. Again, because the years don't add up. Again, Achashverosh opened up the, you know, the, the gates for, for potential Shaduchim in the third year. Esther doesn't go till the seventh year. Teretz is, the Medrash says, she was hiding for three years. For three years, she was able to hide and uh, uh, avoid Achashverosh. And then eventually, she was stuck. She had to go. So we mentioned, if anyone remembers, uh, a few years ago, we had a shear where we talked about the fast of the ninth day of Tevis. So everyone tries to figure out what happened on the ninth day of Tevis. So the Ramah wrote a Sefer on the Megillah. He writes that, you know what happened on the ninth day of Tevis? That was the day when Vashti was taken into the palace. Now there's only one problem. There's two problems I have. First of all, it doesn't say that in the Megillah. All it says in the Megillah was, It just says the month. It doesn't say the day. And secondly, one could argue that that wasn't such a bad thing. Because ultimately, Vashti, uh, Esther going into the palace was the biggest issue for the Jewish people. So that maybe is, is hard to know why would that be a fast day. Right? We know the Shulchan Aruch brings down that there's a fast day on the ninth day of Tevis and no one knows why. So the Ramah suggests that because that was the day Vashti was taken into the palace. It wasn't such a bad day. Now again, you have to remember, Vashti was taken into the palace in the seventh year. The decree for the Jewish people came down in the twelfth year. So for five years, nothing happened. For five years, no one understood why, Vashti, why Esther was the queen. This is again, another a beautiful idea of how Kosh runs the world. Nothing, we think the Purim story all happened one after the other. There was a lot of downtime between the beginning and the end of the Purim story where Alpiderech Ateva or to the naked eye, nothing seemed to make sense. You know, even, even you know, not, not Lahavda, but I think it's very true, even with the Holocaust. The Holocaust didn't happen overnight. It was a slow moving process. You know, first World War One, and then Hitler started his thing, and then he got thrown in jail. And then the economy started to go down, and slowly, slowly, it wasn't that terrifying. It was over many years it started to de- evolve and become what it ultimately became. So here also, this wasn't all one night, the whole story. This was over a significant amount of time. So Esther is now taken in. Now, so interesting. Now again, Esther wasn't a basula. Esther Pasha's was in Basula, and he puts her, he officially gives her the spot. Everyone's so happy. He makes a very big party, and everything is so, so nice. However, Esther does not reveal her background. Why? Because it says in Megillah, She follows Mama Mordechai. She follows the Psak of Mordechai. This is a halachic ruling. You're not allowed to. Right? A husband tells his wife something, she listens uh, half an ear. But if it's a Psak from a Rav, that's it. She's, uh, she can't uh, break it. And therefore Esther had to listen and she did not tell her. And the Gemara tells us that Achashverosh was interesting. I never understood this either. Achashverosh wasn't happy initially. He wanted to know. So that's why he first made a party to try to convince her. Then we'll learn later on he dropped the taxes to get people to convince, to try to get Esther to uh, tell her, to tell him where she's from. So I don't understand. Achashverosh was a dictator. He could have told Esther very nicely, if you don't tell me I'm going to chop your head off. End the story. You know, you know, we don't find that. We find that Esther is always, you know, tried to be convinced to give that information. And Achishverosh is like, okay, fine, don't tell me. Like, it never bothered, I guess it didn't bother him enough 
and he needed to you know take it into a to into a a, a real a real uh, a real answer because if he really wanted to know he would just threaten to kill her because he has no problem killing people but in any case that's maybe that's also part of the nace who knows maybe that's chat also so what happens so we know the famous story that Mordechai comes to visit her you have to remember Mordechai visited her for five years five years he used to visit her every single day a good husband he used to go visit her. So what happens? So one day he's sitting in the uh, eavesdropping and he hears a conversation between Bixen and Serish. So Bixen and Serish had a whole plot that they were going to take Achashverosh out. They wanted to kill Achashverosh. So Mordechai spoke all languages. So he understood what was happening. So he goes back and he repeats it and he tells Esther to repeat to Achashverosh what happened. So again, we all heard the story when we were little kids. Now, we probably never thought to ask ourselves, why did Mordechai do that? Why is Mordechai the hero? Tell Mordechai, keep his mouth shut. Let Bixam Vesheros kill Achashverosh. And let Esther come back home. Uh, where's the godless over here? Why did Mordechai feel it his job to save, to save Achashverosh? Achashverosh was no tzaddik. Why did Mordechai feel that this was his calling? So there's a couple of answers. One answer is that Mordechai got this Beruach HaKadosh. So Mordechai said, if I'm getting this Benavu, it wasn't just I'm overhearing it. You know, he overheard it because they didn't know he speaks the language. I always joke with my wife when we go to Williamsburg. So Chassidim think literature people don't know Yiddish. So they think it's safe to speak Yiddish. I went to Yeshiva, we heard cheering Yiddish, so I know a little bit of Yiddish. I can't say I speak it well. Because you, never, you always be careful. You never know who's listening to you, and you think they don't know your language. So that's the way most of us understand the story. But the Mepharshim say it was a Ruach HaKadosh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told it to him specifically. So Mordechai said, if Hashem is telling this to me, I need to, I need to deal with it. Another answer that is given, which I like, is a very Gishmaka answer, that um, conspiracy theory. That Mordechai was afraid that if it goes down, that Bix and Viserish assassinated Achashverosh, who's the first person they're going to blame? Esther. Inside job. Esther arranged the whole thing. So Mordechai had to make sure that Esther comes out clear, so he had to put this rebellion down. A third shot, they say, is that part of the Bix and Viserish's plan was not just to kill Achashverosh, but it was to kill Esther as well. So part of the plan was to kill Esther, so that's why Mordechai had to get involved, Mordechai had to step in. So uh, someone once came to the Ger Reb, and he said to the Ger Reb, you see from this Pasuk, that the Jewish people have to be multi-language. We have to learn. We have to learn many languages, because Mordechai would have not been able to have saved. The whole story was only because Mordechai knew all the languages, and that's why Big Samisarish felt comfortable talking in front of Mordechai. But if Mordechai only spoke Yiddish, right, only one language, so then the whole story would have never happened. So they came to the Gerev, telling the Gerev, "This is a makar that we all need to learn secular languages." So the Gerev said back to him, "Ipcham the exact opposite." If every Jew knew all the languages, Big Samasarish would have never said anything. If Big Samasarish knew that every Jew was so educated, he would have never said anything, he would have kept his mouth shut. And then the whole story would have never happened. Aye, so the fellow turned back to the Gay Rebbe, but Lamaisa Mordechai only worked because he knew all the languages. So the Gay Rebbe said, You're right. We need one Jew who speaks all the languages. That will be you. The rest of my Hasidim will speak Yiddish. That was the Gay Rebbe's response to this guy. Good, so you, you'll be that one Jew who speaks all the languages. The rest of my Hasidim will speak only Yiddish. Okay, so that's the famous story with Bixen Viserish. They were ultimately, uh, they were killed. There's one person in the Megillah that we don't even see that she dies. There's no posse in the Megillah that says the Vashti is killed. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Go back. I didn't focus on this, but if you look, it never says, the, and they hung Vashti. It never says, and he killed Vashti. Why not? So the Mepharshim say a beautiful idea, because at that point in the Megillah, the Jewish people sinned. We didn't deserve to hear about someone else dying. Just like uh, Loit and his family wasn't allowed to see the people of Sodom be destroyed, because we, we're not deserving to watch someone else die, because we deserve it also. Later on, when we get better, 
we do tshuva, so then we can talk about Haman dying and his kids dying. All of a sudden, now we're big knackers. But at this point in the Megillah, we're not such a, we're not at that madrega that we deserve to talk about other people dying. But it's an amazing thing. It doesn't say anywhere before in the Megillah that she was killed. So what happens next? All of a sudden, Haman gets a raise. Why does Haman get a raise? What did Haman do that he deserves a raise? So the Mepharshim say very gishmak. Because who was the one that brought in, who brought in Esther? Haman. Who's the one who brought down the plot? Esther. So Achashver said to Haman, you're a good guy. You're doing a great job. You're the one who suggested that I should bring in a new, you're the one who said I get rid of the old wife. And I brought in a new wife. And my new wife saved my life. Ah, oh, Haman, you're fantastic. You're so smart. You're so amazing. You're going to be, uh, I'm going to give you a better, better position. So all of a sudden he gets raised up. And here we come to perhaps one of the most complicated parts of the entire Purim story. Is the Shaila of Mordechai not bowing down to Haman? Mordechai not bowing down to Haman. So the Pasuk says very clearly, O Mordechai lo lo So you don't have to be an expert in Digdik to know lo lo is the future. It should have said not that Mordechai will not, it should have said that Mordechai did not. So the Svasemes points out that the Megillah is telling us that in every generation there's always going to be one person who's going to be lo lo We're always going to have an Echaldar of we're going to have that one Yid who's going to stand up and say, I'm not doing it. I'm not giving in. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be like everyone else. So many people read the Megillah story and they walk away and they say, you know, if Mordechai would have just behaved, we would have never had a Purim story. That's a, a thought that one can might feel when they read the Purim story. And this is a big shayla beyond tonight's share, is Mimonashach. If Mordechai was right, so uh, why did everything happen? If Mordechai was wrong, then Mordechai was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. So there's a whole Shiloh, was Mordechai right, was Mordechai wrong, were the Jewish people right or wrong for bowing down to Haman, was Haman actually an Avodah Zarah, was Haman really just at Selim of an Avodah Zarah, he wasn't really an Avodah Zarah. We know all the famous Gemara Megillah, the Gemara Taka asks, why did the Jewish people deserve to be killed? Why did the Purim story happen? So the Gemara has two terutzim, either because they bowed down, not during the times of Haman, they bowed down during the times of Nebuchadnezzar, which was years earlier, or because they were Nenem Esudah Sachashverish. So the question is, I told you that the Suda was kosher, Chesidah so the answer is, look at the Lashon of the Gemara. It doesn't say they ate. It says they enjoyed. A party that was made to commemorate the downfall of the Jewish people, and you enjoyed? That's such a thing that causes a person to be destroyed. So then again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over it, because there's so much to talk about over here. Was Mordechai, was Mordechai right or was Mordechai wrong? However, the Vilna Goyen writes, I can't believe the Vilna Goyen says this. I saw it in my own eyes. I was unbelievable. The Vilna Goyen says that when the, when the decree comes down, it says in Megillah that Mordechai cried out, So the Vilna Goyen says, that Mora was, he said, oh no, I did this to the Jewish people. That's how the Vilna Goyen learns in the Megillah. The Vilna Goyen learns that Mordechai said to himself, this is all because of me. Now we've spoken in the past how Haman was such a, was such a self-absorbed person where he had the entire country, 99 people, bow, 99% bowing down, one Jew. Let it, okay, one Jew doesn't bow down, move on. No, so that was, that was Haman's self-absorbment that he needed everyone to bow down. He couldn't handle the one person wasn't bowing down to him. So what happens? Haman decides he can't handle it anymore. He can't handle it. So he decides he needs to do something. So what's he going to do? He decides he's going to uh, make a guy, he's going to make a lottery. He's going to make a lottery. And now again, read the Pasuk. When did this happen? We just fast forwarded to the 12th year. Last we spoke, we were in the 7th year. Now in the 12th year, which means for 5 years, nothing happened. No one knew why for 5 years we just sat with Mordechai going every single day. And it's even more than that. When Mordechai told Esther 
to tell Achashverosh about Bix and Viserish. Do you know what happened? Nothing. You would have thought the next day there'd be a parade. Mordechai would get a plaque. He'd be honored. You know what happened? Zero. Which again is part of the godless of the story. You would have assumed if you were writing the story that there'd be all of a sudden an amazing thing. The Jewish people saved it. Nothing. Not till be, Belayla, who nodded, and not till Perik Vav, all of a sudden did that come back, which is again another showing of Yad Hashem in the entire story. So he decides to make a lottery. Hippel <clears throat> Pura, he makes a lottery, Lefnei Haman. What does it mean, Lefnei Haman? In front of Haman. I thought Haman made the lottery. So most before Shemur, Haman did not actually make the lottery. He was overseeing the lottery. Why? Because Haman was very superstitious. He knew lotteries are very superstitious. He didn't want to do it himself. He had someone else do it. So he makes this lottery, and the lottery falls out in the month of Adar. So Haman made this whole lottery. Which month am I going to kill the Jewish people? Oh, Adar. Now you have to remember, we're holding now a Nisan. That means the decree was not for a full year. But that was the month. The month was Adar. And oh, Haman is so happy. Why is Haman so happy? Because he knows that in the month of Adar, that's when Moshe Benu dies. They taught him in Bible class. And Moshe Rabbeinu died in the month of Adar, and that's all Haman needed to hear. He said, this is the month I can bring down the Jewish people. However, the Gemara tells us the little mistake that he made was he didn't realize that an Adar was also the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Mepharshim point out why he didn't know when Moshe Rabbeinu was born. Because we know Moshe Rabbeinu's birth was, a, was, was, a, was a, a little bit of a mystery. Because the first three months they hid him. So no one really knew when Moshe Rabbeinu was born. We knew when Moshe Rabbeinu was born because we have a tradition that he died the same day that he was born. But if you don't have that, so you don't know when he was born. Or that he doesn't understand when Moshe Feinstein writes like this. That we as Jews appreciate Moshe Rabbeinu's birth. Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu's birth is the testimonial that Moshe Rabbeinu was a person. Right? The Christians, they worship uh, God. Uh, yeah. Son of God. We believe that our leaders are people. Moshe Rabbeinu was a person. He was born from a mother. He had two legs. Right? He was a human being. He raised himself up to a great level. But every person is a human. Every leader of the Jewish people, from the times of Moshe Rabbeinu until today, they're all people. They all do human-like things. How do they become great? Because they have the ability. They worked on themselves. And us too can become great if we work on ourselves as well. So he's very happy because he gets the month of Adar. But again... This is not the end of the story yet because <clears throat> he didn't get yet permission from Achashverosh. This is Haman's working this in his back room over here, but like just similar to Hitler, you got to come up with a way to make it legal. So he comes to Achashverosh and he makes his pitch. What's his pitch to Achashverosh? One pasuk. One pasuk pitch. Can you imagine? If Achashverosh was such a, a Jew lover, what's Haman's pitch? Yeah, you know, there's a nation, they're spread out, they don't keep the same laws as us, and Achashverosh is like, okay, fine, great, kill him. What a weak argument. The terrorists Achashverosh didn't love the Jews in the first place. Achashverosh was more than happy to kill the Jews. He just needed that push. The Gemara says in Megillah that Achashverosh and Haman is a marshal of two people. One person needs a hole in his backyard. And the other person needs dirt. So they meet up each other and they realize they each can help each other. I need a hole. But when you dig a hole, you're going to be left with all this dirt. And I don't want the dirt, but I need the hole. You need dirt. Oh, fantastic. Azashirach. You're going to take my dirt and I'm going to make the hole. Says the Gemara, that's Achashverosh and Haman. Achashverosh was more than happy to kill the Jewish people. He just needed that impetus. He needed that push. This is what happened in, 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 in the Holocaust. Many, many of the European countries, and I might add, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, Ukraine is one of them, were more than happy to get rid of the Jewish population. They just needed that push from Hitler. Oh, Hitler took over. The Germans took over. And they made it a law. Oh, now, now we got to kill all the Jewish people. They were more than happy to kill the Poles, the Ukrainians. They were more than happy to get rid of the Jewish population. They wouldn't have done it on their own, 
But now that the Germans came in and they took over, oh, so now we have to do it. That's exactly what happened with Achashverosh. Achashverosh was more than happy. Because if you look at the argument that, 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 that Haman makes, it doesn't make a very compelling argument. What's his argument? That there's a nation, they're spread out, well, well that's the reason to annihilate uh, hundreds of thousands of people. No, no compelling argument over here. So the past, this is that Achashverosh was uh, no, no great lovers of the Jewish people. <clears throat> I see we're already up against the clock already. So what ends up happening is that um, Achashverosh is convinced. Achashverosh is convinced. Now Achashverosh was offered money and he never took the money. Why was Achashverosh offered money? Because Haman figured to himself it's got to be financially logical. Because if you're going to annihilate an entire group of people, you're going to lose money on the taxes. So how do you compensate that? So I'll give him the money. But Achashverosh rejected the money. Why? Why did Achashverosh reject the money? The answer was because Achashverosh didn't want blood on his hands. Achashverosh was mamish, mamish, politically correct. He didn't want it to go down that he took money to have people killed. It doesn't look right. It's pasnished. Not that Achashverosh loved the Jews, but Achashverosh didn't want it to look that he accepted money on behalf of killing people. So he said, you take care of it. Make it happen. I don't want to be involved, but uh, you have my blessing in the background. And then we'll end off with this. The end of the parak ends off that, um, that Haman and Achashverosh sit down to drink and the city of Shushan are scared. Why are the people of Shushan scared? The decree came out that the Jews are going to die. Why are the people in Shushan scared? So some people learn Vayir Shushan Avaycha means the Jews of Shushan. But I saw a different shot, very cute shot, that uh, this was the first time Achashverosh had a drink since uh, the thir- third year of his reign. He went to AA after that, after the whole Vashi story, he stopped drinking alcohol. This was the first time he had a drink. It says in the Pesach, they sat to have a drink. So the people were scared, oh no, he's going back to the bottle. What's going to happen now? He's going to wake up tomorrow and do something crazy. So that's why everyone was scared because they weren't sure what Mordechai was going to do now, what Achashverosh was going to do now that he hit the bottle. And the other shot is that the people were saying, oh no, Achashverosh is doing ethnic cleansing. He's first going to annihilate the Jewish people. What's the next religion? Every person in Shushan was probably mixed with you know different groups of people. Every group was afraid we're going to be the next one. Because no one saw a good reason to why they're killing the Jewish people. Well, five us, why? You just woke up one day and decided to kill them? So each group was scared, each group was worried that they'll be the next. And that's why the year Shushan was Navoicha. Okay, we got to Perak Dalad. So uh, Mr. Shem, maybe next year we'll start from Perak Dalad and we'll tackle the second half of the Perm story. Wishing everyone a wonderful night and a wonderful Shabbos. And Mr. Hashem, Sunday morning, we'll be in person discussing an interesting topic. We're going to be discussing the idea of saying Alanisim Lel Pesa, Lel Purim. The topic will be Lel, Alanisim Lel Purim, Mr. Hashem, Sunday morning in person. Have a wonderful evening and a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you, Rabbi.